This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that does like to fly solo just from time to time. I'm Scott Phillips and with me is, well, nobody. I'm in the studio all by myself today. Doc is away in Canada, Toronto, Canada, off in an investment conference, which frankly I'm pretty sure we'll talk about next week. But for this week, you've just got me and I still am a little tiny bit hoarse from last week, but we're going to push on. As I always say, or as I've said once before when I've done this by myself, if you're here for Doc, if you're here for the banter, that's not today's podcast. Feel free to skip this one, go to the end, go and uh, get your latest version of Serial or uh, Real Housewives, whatever it is you, you want to do with your time, go and do that. If not, however, feel free to stick around because I've got some hopefully relatively interesting stuff to say. I'm going to cover the election fallout only very briefly, don't worry. I'm also going to talk a little bit about interest rates and APRA. This is a big week for home prices, for home uh, for mortgage lenders uh, and for those people who are buying a house or hopefully um, want to get a little bit more cash in their pockets, that might come courtesy of the RBA. And I'm going to do something a little bit different because I'm here by myself. I'm going to talk about five things I've been thinking about. I'll keep them short and sweet. This is going to be a quick podcast this week on Motley Full Money. And if we've got a little bit of time at the end, maybe one or two mailbags. Let's get into it. Motley Full Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. There was an election last week, as you, may, as you may have noticed. Up until about six o'clock on Saturday afternoon, echoing the 2016 US election, it was kind of a shoe in right? Everybody was expecting that the coalition would be turfed out, the Labor would come in. By all reports, coalition staffers had already lined up other jobs elsewhere. And then the results came in, and they came in, and they came in. And a big, big swing to the government and a whole lot of different electorates. Queensland and Tasmania in particular went the way of the Libs. And we kind of left where we started. Uh, For those of us who do write or talk for a living, at least in part, we had to junk everything we thought about, listened to or or read um, and everything we were going to write over the next couple of days. I had a a great article and a great podcast topic lined up for, hey, what now under a new new government with new policies? That's out the window. And so the question now is, what comes next? Well, for investors and for, for people who are, you know, for finance, for these this audience, not much has changed. That's the good news if, if you're that way inclined. And again, keeping the politics well and truly out of this one. Um, no changes to negative gearing, no changes to capital gains tax, no changes to franking credits. And so to some degree, it's business as usual. If there is a lesson there, it's a don't get too hung up on the short term. As we always say, and we're a bit of a broken record on this one, me in particular, you want to be a little bit careful about when you're trying to react or respond or simply guess what might happen next. Now, Monday just gone, if you're a bank shareholder, you had a pretty good day. Bank shares were up 6 to 8% on Monday alone, just on the back of the changes, or sorry, the non-change to government. Um, people were pretty happy that the, the bank shares were going to still pay their fully frank dividends. Those franking credits were going to be refunded to pensioners and retirees. And the bank shares went for an absolute gallop, in large part because the shorters had to cover. And I will get to that in a little bit because we've had a mailbag question about shorting, and I will cover shorting in just a, a little bit of detail. But the, the, the share price has jumped, everyone's happy, and business as usual, we all get on with it. Now, for investors, as I said, that's pretty good and no real change from the election. That's pretty positive if you're an investor, particularly if you're looking for those franking credits. And as I've said many, many times, I uh, frankly, I don't claim any credit for the election result, nor was I trying to influence it necessarily. But that franking credit refund policy in particular was just an awful, awful, awful policy. Hopefully, uh, Labor will learn from that. Again, politics aside, just purely from a policy perspective, it was a terrible policy. It was unfair. It was inequitable. It was just a bad, bad policy. If, if, you're, if your aim was to 
you know, rein in some of the excesses of the retirement kind of income system. This wasn't the way to do it, certainly not with this particular uh, process or, or this particular tool. Um, so I'm very, very glad that we don't have to deal with that. And particularly not me personally, I didn't have to worry about it. I'm still working. But for those of our listeners and those of our members and readers who are already in retirement, they're not going to suffer a fall to their income just simply on the basis of owning the wrong type of asset. It was always a flawed policy. That's pretty much it for the election though. Let's move on. Real money advice from real people. Not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche. Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Now, during the week, and and particularly in light of the election, or maybe not, depending on your political persuasion, there was two big, big, big announcements that came out this week when it comes to house prices in particular. Now, APRA, the Australian Prudential Regulatory Authority, that's the organisation whose job it is to oversee the banking system, has decided that its previous rules around how home loan serviceability, to use a horribly jargonistic word, now how banks should assess our ability to pay off our mortgages. Now, in the past, the banks were obliged to work out whether or not we could pay our loans if rates hit 7%. That was the the baseline, if you like. If you couldn't pay your loan off at 7%, even with rates at three point something for most of us, you weren't allowed to take out the loan. Now, the change there is APRA have basically said, look, we think that's too draconian. We're going to basically scrap that one. Rates are so low now, and in their view, and I think in most people's views, very, very, very unlikely to hit 7%, even in the medium term. Uh, the view is now, okay, let's not use 7%. Let's, let's basically kind of roll that back let banks use their own approach. And their own approach tends to be the current rate plus about 2%. So depending on which what number you're using, somewhere between 55 and 6 maybe 65 is what most banks will use to assess eligibility for home loans from now on. Now, one or half a percent doesn't feel like a big deal, but it actually improves borrowing capacity by some, some people say up to 15 or 16%. Now, that's a pretty reasonable number, right? And just to, to pick some, some very simple maths, because I'm a simple man, if you could borrow a million dollars based on your income before, you can now borrow about $1.15 million. Now, not all of us are going to buy houses at that at that level, frankly, but you know, pick, pick the number and apply it to your own circumstances. On half a million dollars, it gives you an extra 80 grand in the kick when it comes to buying a home. And that really will change many people's ability. Simply, again, you don't have to earn any more money. It doesn't change the interest rate you're actually paying. It just says, hey, we're going to be more realistic now. We think you can afford to repay your loan if rates go up a little bit, but don't have to have that ceiling or that floor, depending on which way you look at it, at 7%. So big news for home borrowers in theory and possibly, depending on what side of the fence you're on, good news or bad news for house prices. Um, it should see, to some degree, more demand back in the market. Those who couldn't afford to buy a house in a certain price bracket, now all of a sudden will be able to. That should see more people competing for the properties that are available. Now, if you're a first home buyer, you're, you're happy with lower prices or you want them to fall lower, and Doc's not here, so I don't have to hear him bang on yet again about how much he wants house prices to fall. Um, if, you, if, you're a, if you're a home buyer uh, and you, you can afford it, then you can, can borrow a little bit more. Um, if you're hoping for lower prices or you're a first home buyer and hoping that the lack of competition might work for you, that's probably bad news. Now, speaking of either bad or good news, the other thing was the RBA... Well, not interest rate decision as much, uh, or such, sorry, but Philip Lowe, the RBA governor, came out during the week and talked about pretty much the fact that the economy might be, well, he didn't exactly say it was terrible or things were bad, just that he felt like there was more room to cut rates given the fact that the economic settings were such that basically the economy could tolerate lower rates, would actually be good for the economy without overheating the economy or causing more problems. 
Now, I'm not going to bore you with the economic jargon, although I do like saying Nairu, which is the non-accelerating interest rate of unemployment. Don't worry about what that looks like. Basically, what he's saying is that employment, unemployment can fall further without causing inflation. And in that scenario, because I, the RBA is tasked with keeping inflation in, in theory between 2 and 3%, well, it's kind of one point something right now, and that's much lower than the RBA wants. They would have been worried in the past about if they drop rates, would it cause inflation? Would that cause bigger problems? Or frankly, even more importantly, would the market look after it by itself? And that's the big one. So in this case, the RBA is saying, well, we kind of thought that once unemployment got to this level, inflation would start to turn up by itself. And so we didn't need to do anything about it. It now turns out that maybe unemployment can fall further and not create that inflation they're looking for. In this case, they want inflation. And they're pretty much signaling that the market probably won't do it by itself, at least not at this level of unemployment. That kind of says for most people that the RBA will probably move and probably in June. In fact, the, the financial markets saying there's an 82% chance. So, you know, four chances in five, they're pretty good odds in most, most scenarios, although don't talk about the election. Um, that should have been good news for uh, for rates going lower in June. And the, basically the market's saying if it's not June, it's definitely July. There's a 100% chance between June and July that rates will fall. So if you look at that, I think if you're a borrower, if you are paying off a home loan, if you're looking to pay off a home loan, not only do you get to borrow a little bit more because of the change to APRA's rules around your serviceability criteria, to use that horrible jargon, but also potentially we might yet in a couple of weeks' time find out that we're paying a little bit less on our mortgages. Assuming, of course, the banks pass it on. They'd pass it on, wouldn't they? They're good guys. Value stocks, market, stock market, index, share market. This is Motley Fool Money. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Now, I want to talk a little bit about some things that have been on my mind. There's a five kind of snippets without Doc being here. Uh, we don't have that necessarily the, the banter to trade off. And what I thought I'd do is just say a couple of words about a couple of things that have been on my mind to share some investing. I won't say wisdom because that would be a little bit uh, OTT, but uh, so, some investing thoughts that I've got in terms of just what's been on my mind recently. Five quick things, five quick topics, and a couple of words on each, and then we'll move on to the mailbag. Now, the first thing I want to say is that I am seeing regularly uh, from right across the spectrum, really, in lots of different circumstances, whether that be people that I work with, although not, not so much that group, uh, but certainly investors around the place, people I hear from on Twitter, on email, our members, our readers in the press. Here's the big problem. The smarter you are, and I've said this before, the smarter you are, the worse an investor you tend to be. So that's my topic number one. The real issue here is that if you are either used to being right or used to being smart, or frankly, if you think you've got a good handle on what's going on in the world and you kind of, you know, consider yourself a bit of a, a bit of an expert or a bit of a, an intellect when it comes to these things, you're tempted to try and use that intellect because you're used to being good at this stuff to solve all of the world's problems and try and work out how it all fits together. Now, we know from behavioral finance, the more data points you give somebody, the more right they think they are, uh, regardless of whether the data points even actually make a meaningful difference to the investment case. So if you give people two data points, they'll have an assumption. If you give them five, they'll think they're more correct. If you give them 25, they'll think they're even more correct. That on the surface makes some logical sense, except we know from that behavioral finance research that we're no more correct. In fact, we're often more wrong the more data points we have. Now, when it comes to actually choosing our investments or investing, we're tempted to read the papers, look around, do the maths. Um, we, we try and put more and more and more inputs into this process. What it tends to do is it drags us away from the few things that really do make a difference. Now, at The Motley Fool, we think that's buying long-term, being company-focused rather than stock price or chart-focused, um, really trying to understand the business model 
things that change our investment returns and influence our investment returns, picking two or three or four things that really make a difference, that really matter, and prioritizing those is far, far more valuable than trying to you know, integrate 25 or 30 different variables. So if you're, if you're a student of politics, you might want to try and work out what China or Trump or Venezuela or Russia or interest rates or whatever are going to impact on your portfolio. The more inputs you put in, the smarter you feel. And we like the fact you can put all in these inputs into a, into a spreadsheet or a formula or even just a way of thinking. The reality is, though, and I've seen this so many times firsthand, the best investors aren't the smartest people, generally speaking. You've got to be a certain level of smart to do this. But the, the smarter you are, the harder it is to actually put some of that intellect aside. Now, Warren Buffett himself has talked about the fact that you know he'd, he'd happily sell 20 or 30 IQ points simply because it just doesn't matter at that level. He said it himself. It's certainly been my experience. If you're listening to us and you're, and you're a rocket scientist, then fantastic. Please go and build those rockets. Uh, go and do that brain surgery. Go and do all those wonderful things you can do with that massive brain. Just when it comes to investing, try and dial that back a little bit. Remember the big things that matter and don't try and put in the 15th or 25th or 35th variable in terms of how you think about the investing world and, and the business world in general. Experience and research says it's not going to help you. Modly Fool Money. Now, number two, here's a quote for you. And this is one from an ex-fool, Morgan Housel. And again, this is one I've mentioned before, so long-term listeners will have heard this. Um, hopefully, it helps to, to, rem- to remember this if you haven't heard it before. Hopefully, this has an impact on your investing. He says, roughly misquoting here, or at least uh, at least paraphrasing, more money is lost preparing for the next crash than in the crash itself. Now, this is the this is, and and it's not actual money; it's probably opportunity cost more than that. This is opportunity cost being the the kind of you know the 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 the, for, the profit you forego. If I spit my words out, the profit you forego when it comes to how we build the the future returns in our portfolios. Now, if you'd have in two thousand and nine worried about a double-dip recession, which, frankly, many people were talking about, you probably weren't investing. In 2011, then, you probably still weren't investing because China was going to crash. There was going to be this hard landing, this air quotes, hard landing. Uh, in 2013, there was probably something else. Goodness knows what that was at that point. Two years later, it was probably Brexit, or Grexit was in there somewhere as well. Uh, there's always reasons not to invest. Now, if you'd have taken your money out of the market at any point over that two or three or five or seven or ten-year period because you're waiting for the next thing to happen – well, you wouldn't necessarily lost money because you'd have as much as you started with. But in that time, the market's gone up meaningfully. In Australia, the market's up 140-odd percent in a decade. In the US, it's up 250%. And the NASDAQ is up about 500%, give or take. If you'd have been worried about the next crash, you could have foregone somewhere between 150% gain and a 500% gain while you waited for that crash to turn up. Now, I don't need to tell you, if you've got 100% gain, you can afford the market to fall by half before you get back to where you started. The number of times in history the market's fallen half from top to bottom is really, really, really small. So the longer you wait for the next crash, the more you sit in cash and try and be smart. Um, it's another line I've used. You know, it, it's it's better to be an optimist and occasionally wrong than a pessimist and occasionally right. And it's the same theory here. If you're waiting so long for that crash to come, yeah, you feel smart when it finally does. I told you guys it was happening. And when the market falls 20% in three years' time, you say, see, I told you, I'm glad I didn't invest in the meantime. Unfortunately, you've done your dough because you probably would have gained, again, the 150% on the ASX, the 250% in the US or the 500% on the NASDAQ while you were waiting for that next crash to turn up. It's really, really, really expensive. And it kind of ties into the first point I made. Don't get too hung up here on trying to you know, be the master of the universe. You're not Nostradamus. You don't need to be. Invest. Invest regularly. Hold your nerve. Buy quality. The rest look after itself. Modly full money. And here's number three, and this is kind of, I mentioned the NASDAQ and the S&P, and so again, I've given away my lead here. Uh, the third thing is invest overseas, please. 
Please invest overseas. Uh, whether you're buying stocks directly on overseas exchanges or simply buying a, an ETF, an exchange-traded fund that's based here in Australia that invests overseas, there is so much opportunity, so much opportunity around the world. Not, not only is there opportunity, frankly, the, the big reason moving forward is you want to invest in those businesses that are that are literally inventing the future, right? The Facebooks, the Netflix, the Googles, the Amazons, and I own the last two for, 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 um, for full disclosure. You want to invest in those companies because they are the companies that are generally, you know, inventing the future. That you know, the the next iPhone, the next streaming movie service, the next e-commerce player, the next whatever. They're probably going to come out of the US. Now, we've got some good companies here. We've got some great businesses that have been around for a very long time. The BHPs and the NABs and the CBAs and the Rios and the CSLs. These are great companies, right? Don't get me wrong. I'm not bagging Australian companies. I think we can do really, really well investing in Australia, buying the right businesses. But the, the companies overseas, and that, those numbers I showed you before, the fact the S&Ps, you know, up 250 versus Australia's 140-odd, the, the NASDAQ is up, you know, three times the gain of the Australian market over the same time period, over the last decade. It really goes to show that there are just so many bigger, frankly, better opportunities, and alternative opportunities, right? We don't have an IT sector here of any note. We don't really have a, a, a big retail presence here of any note. We don't have a big consumer goods business. Um, the Nikes, the Under Armors, the... Um, pick your names, your Walmarts, your Amazons, your uh, Facebooks and Netflixes and Googles. Those companies just simply don't exist here. So I'm not saying don't invest in Australia. That's the last thing I'm saying. What I am saying is please don't restrict yourself just to the 2% of the world's markets that Australia represents. If if, I, if you'd have said arbitrarily, look, I'm only going to invest in the companies on the ASX to start with K or X or B um, because they're 2% of the world uh, of the ASX. You say, well, that's crazy. Why would you just do that? And we, do, we what we actually do say is is in effect, if not deliberately, I'm only going to invest in two percent, one in fifty of the world's companies, or one in fifty of the world's market cap, because Australia only represents two percent of the world's market capitalization. That's total stock market value. Only two percent of the world's stock market value is here in Australia. No one would ever say deliberately that's the right investing universe, just arbitrarily. You might, after a whole lot of research, say, hey, I only want to invest in one country, and here's the reason why. But what are the odds that that's your home country, the country we're starting in, the country with you know, a heap of miners and banks and, and not a heap else? makes so much more sense to invest in, well, Australia, but also invest overseas. More than half of my portfolio is overseas. Um, I think more than half of most people's portfolios should be overseas. As you're getting closer to retirement, it makes sense to bring some more money home. Uh, but the, the opportunities just for pure diversification, currency diversification, industry diversification, geographic diversification. Let's face it, your home is in Australia. Your job is almost certainly, if you're listening to this, in Australia. Um, your savings are probably in Australia. Most of your, all your, your super, or most of your super is invested in Australia. That's a huge, huge concentration. And again, it just makes so much more sense. If Australia has a downturn, but the US doesn't, or the UK or Europe doesn't, wouldn't you like to have some of your money invested in businesses over there? I'm pretty sure I would. So please invest overseas, um, whether that's, as I said, directly with a, with, a, with a broker, which I think is smart, or if you're not going to do that, at least add some money to your portfolio in an overseas-based ETF, a NASDAQ ETF, an S&P 500 ETF, uh, a rest of the world ETF if you want to. There's plenty of those out there. Vanguard is a great starting point for that. Uh, please get some overseas exposure. Modly for money. Number four, as I keep going, here's one for the youngsters. Uh, if you're... If you, I was going to say if you've got less grey hair than me. I don't have a lot of hair at all, as Doc made mention last week. Thank you, Doc. Um, I don't need shampoo these days. If uh, if you've got uh, you know a decent head of hair and not much of it's grey, you have an opportunity and an advantage that none of the rest of us can possibly hope to match. You have time on your side. I was talking to my young bloke the other day. He's 23. He's getting started investing, which I'm super excited about. He's starting to put some money aside for the future. 
And he was sort of asked me what to invest in. We had that conversation, and that was that was a really good conversation. But at the end of it, I said to him, look, mate, the, here's the thing. If you just keep investing, it almost doesn't matter what you invest in. You can actually lose to the market. I don't think anyone should, by the way. I think there's plenty of opportunities to, to match or beat. But you could lose to the market at 23 and still, by the time you're 60 or 65, have a squillion bucks as long as you keep investing and let time do the heavy lifting. You simply can't move your returns up high enough by the time you're 45 or 55 or 60 to match the returns you can get at 20 or 25 just by putting money aside regularly and earning a decent compound return. So if, you're, if you've got a two in front of your age, then guess what? You've got an advantage that most of the rest of us would kill for, and that is time. Uh, we'd all like to have a little bit more time in our lives in general, but certainly when it comes to investing, please, if you're that age, I know it's tempting to think, well, I've got other things to spend money on. I've got a mortgage to pay, entertainment, bills, um, travel. Do those things. Have a great, you know, well-rounded life, but please do, do your future self a favor. Start investing. There is nothing at all in investing that beats the advantage of time. Modly for money. And number five, is one really for those of us who spend a little bit too much time watching the markets. And this is this is about you know how you should think about investing as a as a general approach, as a, as a pursuit. And the first thing I would say is don't, love businesses. Love, love the idea of analyzing businesses, working out how things tick. If you're that way inclined, you probably are because you're listening to this podcast. If you want to have a think about how Woolworths makes its money or Amazon makes its money or what's going to happen in the airline industry or you know the future for coal mining or iron ore mining, then great, do that. That's that's a fantastic pursuit. It's a great mental exercise. It's super interesting. It keeps me engaged and involved for you know for ages. This is that's a wonderful, wonderful thing to do. And love investing. Love the idea of being able to then take your yeah, put your money where your mouth is, quite literally. Take those ideas, those insights, and invest alongside them. That is a fantastic thing to do. It's a great hobby. Just love all that. But don't love the idea of regularly swatch, you know, switching around your portfolio. Don't get sucked into the idea of investing being a spectator sport. So many people are in their brokerage account two, three, five, 10, 20 times a day trying to see what's happened most recently to the share price of X or the size of their portfolio or something else. It's so tempting, right? It's a click of a button. You can jump into your brokerage account and you know do it at 10 and then 10.05 and then 10.10 and 10.20 and Right through the rest of the day, you, you could spend all day just hitting the refresh button, right? I've been there, quite frankly. I've, I've been that person. Um, it, it's just really counterproductive. There is nothing useful you can learn, nothing useful you can do by watching your portfolio. All it can do is really mess up your head. We know that uh, the brain works on a whole lot of chemicals. And one of those chemicals is involved in what's a kind of a combination of an addiction slash um, the excitement, the dopamine you get from from the market's moves, uh, watching things go on. It's almost that that sense of adrenaline, Right. You don't want to have adrenaline when you're investing. That's a very that's the investor's worst, you know, worst enemy is adrenaline. You want to be able to do it in the cold light of day, separately from the market. Just do you do me a favor, do yourself a favor. Don't look at your brokerage account today, or if you're listening to this over the weekend, don't look at it on Monday. Just literally don't open it. If you have to do it, do it at half past four or five o'clock in the afternoon once the market's closed. I think I've said before on this podcast that when I was in the US on work, it was a really eye-opening experience because I was literally asleep while the market was doing its thing. And so rather than being able to check the market a few times a day and see what's up and see what's down and, and kind of wonder what's going on, you, you wake up in the morning in the US and you open your brokerage account and you see the result of a day's trade. And that was it. And, and it was kind of, it was almost an anti-climax and that's exactly what investing should be. So please, my last thought for today and my last, uh, my last exhortation to you, our listeners, is please just try and ignore the movements of the market. It is not a spectator sport. It is not something you should be regularly playing as a, as a game. By all means, love the game of investing, love the game of business analysis and, and understanding businesses. That, that part of the game is wonderful. Just please leave the share price movements and the charts alone. They are going to only cost you money. I am almost... 100% sure of that.
Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Now let's finish off our podcast with a couple of mailbag questions. I did, uh, I'm flying solo. As you know, Doc's not here. He's in Canada, as I mentioned at the beginning. He will be back next week. And so he'll get a chance to comment on some of these things because a couple of your questions were directed to him. I'll, I'll still have a go at them because I'm here by myself and he can't stop me. Um, but also, too, I put out a call this morning. I said, hey, guys, I'm flying solo. Anyone got any questions, comments, ideas, topics you want me to talk about? And a few of you did come back with some ideas and some topics. So I'm going to quickly run through a couple of those and give you my thoughts. I will give Doc the right of reply next week because I'm that kind of guy. Uh, but let's start off with a question about one of Doc's, I think it is his absolute favorite company, and that's Tesla. I've had a question from Rory on Tesla. Um, also had a question from somebody else, uh, I can't remember who it was, on Twitter asking about Tesla. So Rory's question was, um, as always, love the podcast. Makes my Friday commute more entertaining and informative. Dear Rory, you've got to get out more, mate. If this, if this is entertaining, well, hopefully we're informative. If we're entertaining, well... Maybe you're laughing at us rather than with us. I'm not sure which, but thank you for listening. He says, as a Tesla fan, I'd love to hear Doc's thoughts on the Tesla share price over the last six months and what's causing it. Cheers. Now, he also attached a, um, a tweet from the Spectator Index since this Tesla stock price over the last kind of, not even a year, really. So 13th of December, 2018 was 376 bucks. By February, 2019, 308. By March, 288. The 15th of April, 256. Now... 205 bucks. It's almost fallen in half in the space of not even six months. So the question, or just on six months, the question from Rory was kind of what's going on? I, I, I'll let Doc talk about Tesla in particular, but let me let me give you a, a kind of an outsider's view on, on the Tesla share price. This is a company that has been, Elon Musk has done a wonderful job building a business, making stuff, making a, a, new, a new car quite literally, almost from the ground up, still four wheel and a steering wheel, but the rest of the car is kind of entirely different, or at least the, the four different models of cars plus a, a semi-trailer. Um, he's, he's kind of reimagined what what you know cars can be from the powertrain and the entertainment system and the the brains of the car. It's really a consumer electronics device that happens to have four wheels and a steering wheel. So he's done a wonderful, wonderful job. I love the cars. Actually, I don't, I don't love the Model X. I'll, I'll say this while Doc's not here. I think it's an ugly, ugly car. The the kind of SUV car. Looks like a fridge on wheels. Got this really stubby front nose. The Model S though is just a really, really sexy car. I love the look of the Model S. Happily drive one if I got the chance. Um, hopefully, at some point we might even buy a Model Three as a family. We'll see how that how that pans out. But uh, in the meantime, the question is really what's going on, on with the Tesla share price. And I think Elon's done such a great job of of getting the money and the interest and the time and the kind of loyalty of the true believers, those who believe in his mission and vision and where he's going. That's been a wonderful, wonderful thing. And for quite a while, Tesla looked like it was making real strides in delivering some great results, some great performance. The share price was going up. The number of cars being produced was going up. Elon had said some positive things about the company and the true believers jumped on board and wanted to believe. Now, I don't necessarily think he's necessarily wrong with any of that stuff, and I won't bag the true believers for believing. I think that's fair. And, you know, again, everyone can have their view on Tesla. I'm not bearish, by the way. I've just simply given it a miss. That's too hard for me. Um, but if you think about what's happened since, so the first thing was the the funding secured kind of tweet where Musk talked about taking a Tesla private, and that kind of didn't turn out. And Musk had said previously, there's no need to raise more cash. And then he went and raised two point something billion dollars worth of cash. Um, there's more debt that's due to be repaid soon. Tesla's missing or just meeting production targets. Kind of the, the news flow has been pretty negative. And this is why this is important, because like any company, but more so with Tesla, sentiment matters a heap more than fundamentals in the short term. In the long term, it doesn't matter at all. But the reality is that for a while, everybody loved Tesla for lots of different reasons. Now, there are fewer people loving Tesla, and like everything, this is an ongoing auction. Every day the market's open, people are auctioning shares, they're buying or selling based on the given price, 
And if there's people who are saying, oh, look, I'm done, I want to get out, and there's a lot of people trying to buy those shares, well, the sellers overwhelm the buyers and the price falls. And right now, it does strike me that simply the sentiment in the market has fallen. Now, if you believed in Tesla at 400 bucks a share and you thought that was decent value, you're getting a wonderful opportunity to buy shares at almost half price. That's a pretty good deal. On the flip side, if it was never worth 400 bucks, but people were just paying that because the hype was getting carried away, then that's the sort of thing that happens. We see plenty of those scenarios in uh, in the markets right around the world. We see companies just fly super high based on, a, you know, Afterpay is a great example, right? The, the, the performance is growing nicely and full credit to the Afterpay as a business. But the share price is so far ahead of that because people have just all of a sudden bought into the dream. And that may well be completely justified or it may not. And that's the thing, if and when Afterpay starts to disappoint people, actually Zero is a better example. I think we talked about this last week or the week before. Zero went from 12 bucks to 50 and then back to 12 again in quick time because people believed in the dream and then completely lost hope in the dream. Now, guess what? It's back to 50 bucks again. So over six years, the share price has gone almost nowhere except that it's, you know, it, it fell by three quarters and then rose by, you know, 400% on the way through. It didn't necessarily mean any of those prices was right or wrong. Maybe each of them were in different in different ways, but this is that was just pure sentiment. The business itself is on a pretty solid, pretty straight trajectory, quite frankly. I don't think the... You could argue that zero as a business has been anything but great over that period of time in terms of, you know, kind of up and to the right. The, the, the performance of the business is exactly what they'd hoped to do. Now, people might have wanted to be profitable earlier and that kind of stuff, but it was never going to be. It's kind of done exactly what it said it was going to do, but investors were super excited, then super pessimistic, then super excited again. Um, and frankly, the business is now starting to deliver in a way that's given it record high share prices. It's just been a really, really tough journey. And the answer all the way through, if you'd said to me, hey, what's happening with zero share price? The answer would have been, or hopefully would have been at the time, certainly in hindsight is, it's just the sentiment of investors. So if you're a Tesla shareholder, if you're any shareholder, and particularly though, if you're a shareholder in high growth high expectation companies, Afterpay, App, and any of the wax stocks. Um, that's very much the story there is, is, you know, expectations and sentiment drive so much of the share price in the short to medium term. And as we always say as, as fools, that's why we're looking to the long term, right? If you get a chance to buy zero at 12 bucks, then go, go, <laughs> grab it, go for it. Um, you know, hindsight may well say that 50 bucks was also cheap, by the way. Um, so take advantage of the market's mood swings if you can, but please try not to be influenced by them because sentiment is just really, really powerful. It's all encompassing, but you have to ignore it because it's not telling you anything. Um, it's it's all it's telling you, sorry, is how the, how the market's feeling, nothing about the company itself. So that, that's really important to remember. Modly for money. Had another question too, actually about from Hales, actually about the wax stocks. Is love the show. Hey hey. Um, I only started purchasing shares this year. Fantastic. Well done. So I mean, so I enjoy your commentary. I'm wondering if our wax stocks have lost their shine. Now I'm not going to spend much time on this. I've already talked about zero and afterpay. So that's two of the five wax stocks. Wax, of course, has three A's for those following along at home. Uh, I will go through it. It's WiseTech, Afterpay, Appen. Uh, Altium and Zero, almost forgot Altium there. Uh, those are the five wax stocks or wax stocks, as you like. Um, have they lost their shine? Yeah, I think they probably have. And I think, again, the question really remains, was that shine ever justified? Is it still justified? Those are sentiment questions. The question we have to ask as investors is, is today's price attractive? Whether or not the share price has fallen is completely a separate question. And that's why as investors, we have to look at the fundamentals of the business um, ben Graham, Warren Buffett's mentor, famously said that um, you, you're neither right nor wrong because the market agrees with you. You're right or wrong because your data is right or wrong. Your analysis is right or wrong. That has to remain the core of any investment. That's where we get market beating returns from, by the way. When we're right, but the market is wrong, that's exactly where market beating investments come from. Because if the market's already right, 
you're not going to be able to beat the market by definition, right? Because the market's already getting this stuff right. Um, it's when the market has a, a short-term or even medium-term couple of conniptions, freaks out or simply doesn't recognize value in a particular company. That's where the big returns are made. And they're the sorts of companies we're exactly looking for, even if it's painful in the short-term to hold those stocks. So yes, wax stocks have lost their shine. I am a little bit concerned that most of them are very highly valued, if not some of them are overvalued. Um, time will tell, of course. But in any case, don't worry about what the market's telling you about the share price. Worry about what the business is doing, whether you think that the current share price at any point in time is justified by the business. If it is, then buy and ignore the market's pessimism or optimism. If it's not, then sell and ignore them again. Modly full money. And the last question we've got is a question from uh, Richard. And Richard, uh, it's a question for me, so I'll answer this one. Richard says, what's up with Soul Pats, one of Scott's favourites? 30 plus percent drop in four-ish months. Yeah, Solpats was Solpats is a fan, it's a it's a interesting stock to watch. I, I love the company. I think it's a wonderful business. Uh, the Milner family have run it for four generations. You've probably heard me bang on about it before. And for full disclosure, I do own Solpats stock, so take that into account as you listen to my commentary. Um, Solpats as a business is a is a, a really good business. But because the shares are relatively thinly traded, that means there's not all that many shares that trade hands in a given day, the stock can be really volatile, which is strange for a business that is this kind of sleepy, conservative, value-investing-based business, been around for 100-plus years. It's kind of not the stock, the sort of stock that should jump by 2.5% or fall by 2.5% in a given day, but it tends to because there's not a lot of buyers or sellers. And if you're trying to sell a large number of shares or buy a large number of shares, you're going to move the price around in doing so. And so we saw that on a daily basis. Now, writ large, as as Richard asks, over four months, we have seen the price drop from 30 plus down to 22, 30 or so. So that's a pretty meaningful drop. I don't know, it quite qualifies as 30%, but it's close enough among friends. Uh, and this is, again, a question of, I think, largely a sentiment question, right? So if you think about, you know, what's changed in the business over that period of time, well, you could argue that the TPG Vodafone merger being blocked by the ACCC might have hurt Solpats to some degree. Uh, Brickworks, which has a cross shareholding with, you know, maybe their short term kind of construction woes or concerns may have weighed on the stock. This isn't when we're in the market, though, of of trying to guess uh, sentiment, right? This is exactly what I was just saying before about sentiment, which is we're looking at that saying, well, where do we, you know, why is the share price fallen? Is there anything really fundamentally different about the long term outlook for Solpats? Or is it a case of the market simply changing its mind? And again, I think there's a bit of both. So the TPG deal not going through. Because the Solpats owns a very large chunk of TPG, and by rights, the Solpats share price should be impacted by changing the TPG share price because you're kind of buying Solpats, you're buying some of the parts, so you're getting a fractional ownership in TPG by doing so. It probably should fall if the TPG share price falls. So to some degree, there is a bit of justification there. I would say the very large bulk of it, though, is purely sentiment. Now, of course, we also need to be careful we don't uh, ignore the ups because we didn't ask the question maybe when the share price jumped 30%. We didn't say, why is it up 30%? That's terrible. We, we love the ups. We never ask the question. When it falls, uh, we tend to worry about that. And Solpats, over the longest time, has been a really strong performer, share price-wise and business-wise, for I said decades, and and that I think will remain the case. Frankly, I just like Solpats a whole lot more than I did at, at thirty bucks, just because it's heaps cheaper. And I, I like I've liked the business for the long term. At twenty three, I liked it at twenty five. I liked it at thirty. So when the share price falls back to twenty two, I'm I'm still pretty happy about it. I still like the long term future. I don't know where the share price goes in the short to medium term. As I always say, maybe it goes to eighteen before it goes back to thirty. Maybe it goes to thirty and never hits eighteen again. Um, I don't know. No one can know. What I do know is I think at the current share price. It's, it's pretty cheap. It's about 15 times earnings. 
Those earnings are a bit muddy because um, the way Solpats accounts for its earnings because it has to under accounting laws. You don't necessarily get all the full value in the reported earnings. Some of it comes through as dividends, some is consolidated earnings. It's all a bit of a mess. Uh, but broadly, it's about 15 times earnings. Brickworks, which it has a cross shareholding with, is trading on 10 times earnings. And yeah, maybe even in the short term, Brickworks has some trouble if the housing market downturn continues and there's less construction. But if you look at 10, 15, 20 years and say, do I believe the Milner controlled companies will be bigger and better than they are today? I think it's a brave person to say they won't be. And so for me, it's a really key bottom draw holding for me. Uh, I've recommended it to my young bloke, as I've uh, kind of alluded to before. I've recommended my sister. It's uh, part of many of our portfolios, The Motley Fool. It's certainly a shareholding of mine. I'm not saying you should rush out and necessarily make it your whole portfolio. I don't think that's necessarily the right approach either. But if you want a really solid, stable core shareholding of your portfolios, uh, particularly on the on the Australian market, I think Berkshire Hathaway qualifies in the US, but I couldn't think of a better bottom draw kind of foundation block or brick for your portfolio than Solpats. Well, that wraps us up. That is the Doc Free or the the uh, Doc Free sounds like it's a positive. That's the that's the Scott only version of the podcast. Hopefully, you've made it through this far. If you haven't, then I'm not going to worry about it because you're still not here. If you have, thank you for listening. I hope I've entertained and amused you. Hopefully also uh, given you a little bit of information and helped you become a slightly better investor in Doc's absence. We're always better as a twosome than by ourselves. So when Doc's back next week, we'll have his view on Tesla. I've asked him to remind me because I may just conveniently or otherwise forget. He may also have a rant about house prices. So if that's your thing, make sure you tune in next week. He's been away for a week, so he might be. He might have some pent-up thoughts about that. But in the meantime, that does wrap us up. Before we go before I go. Don't forget you can subscribe to the Triple M Motley Fool Money podcast through your iTunes or favorite Android podcast apps. And if you like what we're doing, please give us a rating on iTunes. Leave us a comment, leave us a review. As I said before, that's how people find us. It helps us rank higher on the algorithm that the app stores use. And also gives some people a bit of a bit of insight into what it is about the Motley Fool Money that you like, assuming you do. If you don't like us, then don't worry about rating us. But if you do like us, please let others know so they can find us too. And don't forget, you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week with another dose of foolish insight. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.